0: Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis back with you with Advent Christian Voices uh, continuing uh, right along the same theme we were in last week. Uh, You remember we were talking about uh, the encounter that Mary had with uh, the angel Gabriel. Normally, this is a Christmas message, but since I had been going through the book of Luke, I had to start somewhere and that happens to be where it is. So uh, we weren't really able to get through Uh, some of the points, which I thought were very important that were found in that particular passage. So today, I'm going to pretty much take up where I left off, but uh, just for the benefit of your recollection, we're going to read through once again that passage. It won't take but a second, so I'm going to let's see, I'm going to read through it here in Luke. I'm using the English standard version. And uh, that starts in the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And it is in the start of, actually, the 26th verse. Sorry, I got that wrong on the 25th. 26th, I think, through the 30 um, 39th. So I'm just going to read through that quickly for the benefit of your recollection. We'll look at that. In the six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, Named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she uh, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. uh Come upon you, and the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And be, behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called Aaron. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according your word. And the angel departed from her. That brings us up to the 39th verse. We're going to stop right there and uh, we'll take a look today, continuing where we left off last week in the Lucan account here of that particular visit. Because this is such a a, a crucially important uh, And significant, and I believe it's really a foundational passage for our understanding of the gospel. And there was no way we could ever hope to cover it entirely in the time given for just one message. So I'm going to stick with it until I think we've essentially covered the main points. So the passage starts by saying that um, the angel Gabriel came to the small town of Nazareth in Galilee to visit this virtually unknown virgin named Mary who was betrothed to a man named Joseph, both of whom were incidentally of the house and lineage of David. Luke is compelled to include the designator here of Galilee for the general location of the town of Nazareth because he knows certainly the audience he's trying to reach which includes Gentiles from a family fairly wide region would also thereby include many people who probably never heard of this little and certainly very obscure town uh, of Nazareth Well, of course, Galilee is uh, much better known. If you've ever been to uh, Nazareth, incidentally, the first thing you notice about the place is that it's located on the most precipitous side of this rather steep and significantly large hill. Of course, it makes it a bit cumbersome for moving around as freely as you might like if you live there. And consequently, it was certainly not the most attractive place to live. You were not a citizen of Galilee, uh, what you might not know about Nazareth was that it w- it had already gained quite a notoriety, uh, but only because it was considered as being one of the hangout, you might say, or the abode of a bunch of hoodlums or criminals. Uh, I guess they went there because it was an uh, easy place to hide, I suppose, uh, from the authorities. And um, in any case, if you were Known to have lived in Nazareth or to have come from Nazareth, you were uh, already viewed as being under some cloud of suspicion, as we see in the Gospel of John's account when Nathanael was introduced to Jesus of Nazareth as the long awaited Messiah. His response immediately was a very rhetorical question. Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? So the point is that Nazareth is sort of at the bottom of the totem pole when came to places of any renown. And secondly, Mary, the teenage virgin espoused to Joseph, both of whom lived in this place, which most would probably describe as God forsaken. Would also be pretty much on the uh, bottom of the totem pole when it comes to having any social standing or or prestige uh, within the community, even of Nazareth or on the social scale, certainly of the nation of Israel as a whole. Although being in the lineage of David, you have to remember any promises which may have been said to have been made to King David some thousand years previously were certainly long forgotten by all, save the very precious few who would be perhaps the most advent adherents to what would have been by now uh, or by then the very obscure promises found in uh, scriptures made to an ancient king of a long since vanquished and forgotten dynasty. So we're talking about this angel, this envoy of God Almighty, going to the lowest of the low and the most desolate, <clears throat> excuse me, of places to announce that she would have a baby who would be, in fact, God in the flesh, essentially. <clears throat> Twice in this passage, Gabriel uses the term "the Most High" to refer to God. It's actually quite a common term, frankly, for God, uh, uh, the God of Israel. That is, as you can imagine. Uh, found many times in the Old Testament. And as you can imagine, this infant son of Mary, who at this point is yet without a husband, betrothed means being unmarried, although pledged to be married. So this infant child she's found to be carrying in a womb is not would not certainly be from any human perspective viewed with any great expectations or desires. He would have to have been seen as an illegitimate child. And if there were any way get rid of him, that would have been the first inclination of any who follow the politically correct culture of the day, certainly in our own day and age, such a pregnancy would have not been wanted. It would have been a very big inconvenience, sufficient to ruin all the hopes and dreams of any young girl burdened down with it and enough to bring upon her all the contempt you'd ever imagine. That would certainly be the case as well for any uh, young lady in, in Mary's day and age. And if she could have had any other choice in the matter, it goes pretty much without saying that choice would have been to end it all. Even if doing so would have meant being labeled, perhaps in the eyes of some, as no more than a murderer. So as low as this place is, as low as this teenage virgin girl is, the child she's about to be carrying is all that much more lower and lowly still in the eyes of the world. Truly the most lowly of the most lowly being ever graced that ever-graced, you might say, the face of this planet. So once Jesus described himself as being meek and lowly, and that is a very precisely accurate description of what he certainly was from the very moment of his conception. In other words, all I, I say all this to try to help you understand what this passage is telling us is that the one who is rightly described and even named twice in this very passage as being the most high far above all else, is about to become, by his own design, the most low and humble creature far beneath all or anyone else. The most beautiful is about to become, in the eyes of the world, the most ugly. The, most, the, the one described in scripture as the desire of nations is here about to turn into the least wanted or the, certainly the most unwanted mouth ever to be fed, <clears throat> you would think. The most powerful creator of all is about to become the most weak and the most vulnerable of all creatures to have ever lived. Most high, in other words, becomes the most low. So what does this tell us about God? Does it mean that he's not so great as we might be tempted to think of him as being? And this certainly would be the answer given for the vast majority of religions or philosophies in the world who would tell us that God could never condescend to the point of ever becoming a man because that would be a contradiction in terms, so to speak, a violation of the most fundamental principle of logic that says, for instance, A cannot not be equal to B and and B equal to B at one and the same time. <clears throat> well, that would, in fact, be a contradiction in terms, which is what they equate such an idea as being tantamount to, saying that, that's only because they simply cannot get around the notion of the creator becoming the creature. However, I, I don't think it's such a far-fetched notion to think uh, that if the creator can create the creature and everything else besides, what's to stop him from assuming the nature of the creature? You see, that limitation is only put there by our own natural minds, only when our definition of greatness is limited by certain pre-constructed and preconceived artificial boundaries, you might say, of what that word great actually means, or what actually co- comprises greatness. And only under such a limited view would we say that God is too great to become a single, finite, unique, weak, and frail human being. Judaism and Islam have a uh, construct for God that includes his, his incommunicable attributes, you know, such as his infinity, his immutability, his omniscience, omnipotence, his what we call his aseity, or independence, you might say. So actually Christianity does as well. But they would say, were he to set those incommunicable attributes aside, even for a time, that would negate his own deity. But actually, those constructs, we have to remember, are just that. They're just constructs that are made in the minds of men to help us to try to think about God. And as such, to the degree they help us, they serve their purpose. But to the degree that they limit us, then they need to be set aside. And who's to say what God can or cannot do with what God has made for his own pleasure? No one would argue that God, who is omnipotent, that is, he has the power to do everything and anything he wants to, also has the power to limit his use of that power within his possession. Of course he does. So all this passage is telling us about God is that the greatness of God, that is what makes him so great, what makes him the most high is not only that he is able to do all these awe-inspiring feats, but also at the same time he is willing to he actually does become the most lowly of all his creatures. And I believe it was C.S. Lewis once said the test, in fact, of one's greatness can actually be seen in their willingness to become lowly. And this test of greatness can also be seen in several other mundane examples. For instance, uh, I have to give credit to one of my seminary professors for this one, but I liked it because I understood it because I was a math, I was an engineer at one time in my life. But in math, we say the three-dimensional calculations are greater or more rigorous than those of only two-dimensional or plane surfaces. But such calculations actually are based on two-dimensional and therefore include within them the two-dimensional. So it's much easier to go certainly from three to two, but impossible to calculate three from two just two-dimensional. So we say the three is greater than the two. So spherical geometry includes within its calculations, for instance, plane geometry, but not vice versa. Or I like this example as well. A mature adult certainly can grasp the apprehensions of a timid child and explain to the child many things based upon his own personal knowledge and experience of what the child may be thinking, while the immature an unexperienced child can do no more than speculate or wonder about what, if anything, is actually going on in an adult mind. Therefore, the greater adult can enter into the experience of and be empathetic with and communicate with much more freely, the lesser child, in that sense, than the aforesaid child could ever be possibly expected to do with the adult. Or, for instance, in a place of employment, a supervisor, in order to be in a position of management, should be able to ideally carry out the instructions which he she gives to any of the subordinates as well as explain them, understand them, show them what's necessary uh, to do them correctly or if, what happens if they're not done in just a certain way. Therefore, the supervisor's ability to personally conduct the affairs of the subordinate is a measure of his skill and hence the measure of his greatness as a supervisor. And that would not normally be said of the subordinate with respect to the skills of the supervisor. They generally Be unable to do them. It's not necessary. So the point is that the ability to enter into the realm of the lesser should be a quality that actually determines the greatness of the greater. The willingness and freedom to do so is also a measure because it affirms and establishes the extent of that ability. And hence, conversely, one's inability to enter into the experience and environment and capacity of the other, the one uh, who is considered greater, for instance, is just as much a test of one's being. That much less endowed, less experienced, less informed, less powerful, or less great, we could say. So the willingness of the great to become lowly is actually, in a sense, a demonstration, on one hand, of that greatness. That's not to say that it doesn't mean there's no cost involved to the one who's in a position of greatness to assume such a position of lowliness, but just that the one who is great is and who willingly does assume such a position of lowliness, has it within his resources to absorb those costs, whatever they may be. In other words, he can afford to do it. How can he afford to do it? Well, he could afford to do it simply by paying the price, whatever it may be. Secondly, it means that he was not only rich enough to afford to pay the price, but obviously he was willing to do so, or even desirous to pay the price, which raises another couple of questions. Uh, The first being, what was the price? And the second, what would make the payment of such a price worthwhile? Fact is, we'll never really be able to fathom what was the price, but we must surely recognize it to be exorbitant. Indeed, far beyond the means of any earthly potentate to muster. So i want to look at the second question for a minute, why? Why give up everything? In a sense, when you already have had so much, more than anyone else could ever imagine or desire well i think it has it tells us something about our condition that is about man's fallenness and i think it tells us something about how gravely seriously god takes our sinfulness in other words we are actually much more sinful than we would like to admit we are much more worse we are much worse off i should say than we want to think we are much more lost than we think we are We're much poorer than we think we are without Christ. In other words, as a result of our fallen nature and our sinfulness against our creator, we are just far worse off than we could ever have imagined or thought ourselves to be. If this is what is necessary for our redemption to take place, if these are the lengths to which Christ had to go to pay the price of our salvation, then all I can say is that we must have been in pretty sad shape. That is what it tells us about ourselves. What does it tell us about God? Well, I believe it tells us not just that God is much greater than we think he is, not just that God is much richer than we think he is, but that God is also much kinder than we think he is. God is much more compassionate than we think he is. God is much more loving than we think he is. The thing you have to remember is that God is not going to personally benefit from our salvation. In fact, the more people that gets saved, actually, the more of a burden God is going to have to be willing to assume throughout eternity. That is, if you believe, as I do, that the wicked will perish at the judgment, that means they will cease to exist ultimately. Therefore, God will no longer have to continue to provide for their sustenance. He will need, as he will, for the saved throughout eternity. So the burden of God will actually be diminished by their loss. On the other hand, if you believe that we are all inherently immortal, and then I suppose it doesn't matter from God's perspective one way or the other on that account in terms of the material cost to him. So you could say that as a conditionalist, I believe the love of God demonstrates in saving the lost is far greater than it would or could ever have been for that of an unconditionalist. I happen to be a conditionalist, by the way. I believe that immortality is conditioned upon our salvation. Therefore, I believe that if we are not saved, we will not inherit immortality, and that motivates me far more to respond to God's love because I can sense, I can see how great that love is in sending his son because I realize that for him to do so is far more costly than it could or would ever have been the case were our immortality not a gift which he provides only at the resurrection of the justified and exclusively to and for the justified in Christ. So does that make sense to you? I hope so. But I suppose in any case, this passage certainly demonstrates that there was and remains an unbelievably lavish and extravagant cost that God was nonetheless willing to bear in assuming our nature for the sole purpose of offering to us the opportunity to be redeemed and thereby demonstrate something about God that no other revelation ever could. That is, that his loving kindnesses towards us, his creatures, and all of his creation, to be sure, exceeds anything that we could ever have otherwise imagined. I hope you see that. That's so important. Now I have another question I want to look at uh, that I believe this passage addresses as as well. That question is, can this passage be telling us something about what theologians normally refer to as the Ordo Salutis? That's really the uh, stages of salvation what is the nature of our salvation possibly also implied by that the nature of our sanctification. But initially I say this because I believe Mary's experience here is it's it's intentionally meant to be what you might call a prima facie model of what occurs in the process of salvation. Mary one could say was the first one privileged with this revelation of how God would save the world. And it, uh, it would be through the son that she would bear it would be the son of God. It would be through this infant child that would grow in her womb and the one whom she would give birth to that she herself would be saved. <laughs> she knew that by virtue of the information given to her in her encounter with the angel Gable. And I think her responses to that visitation reveal to us something of what we should expect to see as a model for what we all must go through in the process of being born again, even though perhaps the amount of time it may take and the way these three steps are experienced uh, may vary greatly from one individual to another. I think, nonetheless, we all need to go through them in order to be truly born again. So the first step is experienced in the confrontation with the truth, when one first really hears or listens to the word of God, the gospel. So what does Mary say? What does it say Mary does here? Well, it says that she was greatly troubled in her spirit, as well as she rightly should have been, and as well we all should be, when our eyes are open to the truth of our own desperately sinful, fallen, lost condition. But it's interesting how her reaction is described here. This is the only time the word diataraxo is found anywhere in the New Testament, which means to be greatly perplexed or to be thrown into a state of confusion. If we were to take the prefix dia off this, word, leaving us simply with "taraxo," meaning to be troubled, we would find it used a number of times in the New Testament. In fact, uh, in that case, we have a very similar descriptor- description of the apostles when the Lord, the resurrected Lord, first appeared to them. On that occasion, Jesus asked the question, why are you so troubled, Taraxo, and such doubts, alaga. Logismo, by the way, that's the noun version of the verb which describes Mary's reaction here. Dialogizetto. So why do doubts arise in your minds? That would be the noun. Yeah, Dialogizetto. Mary's encounter, the translation we have, is that she tried to... I think it's it's not the best translation, and I can't find any translation that really uh, justifies the meaning of this... Verb, to my understanding, the Greek word translated here as discern, dialog, it means to reason with or to try to reckon with or to try to account for. It's kind of hard to translate directly actually into English. So it is the word from which we get the English word dialogue. It means that she was questioning what was going on here in her own mind. She was sort of having a dialogue with herself in her own mind And the questions that she was apparently asking herself were focused on the greeting, which the angel had just made to her. In other words, she was asking herself, for instance, is this really happening? Is my mind playing tricks with me? Or is this for real? Am I hallucinating? Is this actually objectively true? And before you move on, you have to decide that it is. These facts that you're confronted with in the gospel are, in fact, true. It's really happening based on your own personal critical evaluation. So both of these elements need to be there initially in the true conversion experience when confronted with the truth of your sin. It should be upsetting. Either that or you just don't get it. When confronted with the truth of the gospel, it should demand an intense questioning on your part to weigh and fully assess whether it is real. The first thing you have to do is come to grips with the fact that you are separated from your creator, you're lost in your sins, and secondly, that Christ has died on the cross on account of it. It's a very personal confrontation, which brings us, I suppose, to the second stage here. The second element necessary in this process is an honest evaluation, a brutally honest evaluation of yourself. In this stage, it's very important to be completely honest. After Mary has acknowledged the presence of this angel Gabriel and what it was that he just said to her, she still has some questions about it. How can she possibly do what the angel has said she would? And in the converse, conversion experience, this step is necessary as well because it's important to understand what the gospel demands of you. To ask yourself, are you truly going to be willing and ready to comply with it? In other words, the gospel demands complete repentance on your part. There's no way in which you can expect to reap the rewards of believing in it unless you are willing to give up any reliance on yourself, any hopes you may ever cherished regarding the possibility of being. The captain of your own fate, you might say, or your own ship. So it demands honesty. Mary had to assess what this proposition would mean for her. She would have to give up any hope she may have ever had of the future she may have anticipated. Her future would no longer be in her own hands. She would face some very formidable obstacles as well. So she asked, how can this be? And the answer to that question is basically, that it is by the grace of God, entirely from beginning to end. Of course, such answers always have implied questions as well. And, and this one was simply, can you believe it? Unless a step is taken, that is, unless there is a full counting the costs involved, there's no point in moving forward from here. For Mary, would it would mean initially being ostracized by her family and community, being shunned by, and certainly losing any prospects of getting married to Joseph or anyone else for that matter. It would mean, from a human perspective, living on the very fringes of society. Or even, in fact, her very survival could very legitimately be brought into question. So it requires being very candid with yourself and asking yourself, how are you going to do it? How are you going to manage? How can you survive? If you're truly honest, apart from God's intervention, you won't be able to do it. Unless this step, this self assessment, is taken, what is going to happen to you is you are going to be like the seed that fell on the shallow soil. The grass may spring up overnight, but as soon as the sun comes up, it shrivels and dies because it cannot take the persecution or the hardship incurred as a result of believing and trying to obey the word. So that's steps one and two. Okay, finally, and only after steps one and two are taken, can you arrive at step three, which is Surrender, full surrender, which is what Mary did here in stating, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be unto me according to your word. It was not something, frankly, about which she was very joyful or elated. She knew what it meant. It meant, in essence, giving up her life. But she was still willing, and she made that commitment to trust God. Now, later we will find out she will experience joy. In the next passage, in fact, when she visits her cousin, cousin Elizabeth, that joy comes to her and is wonderfully expressed in her song recorded for us there. That's later. And that is one of the, in fact, the surprising benefits, which all truth believers will eventually discover, because that joy will actually be a crucially essential way in which the spiritual power is imparted for the living of the overcoming life. That is part of the way in which the Lord empowers his children through the imparting of the joy of the Lord, which is their strength, really. But that's still not something necessary for this step. Step three is simply the point of decision. You have to decide. You have to commit. It's really between you and God. I suppose you can step forward and express that decision in many ways. But first, you have to make it. So I hope you will if you haven't. And uh, one other thing is, I believe this passage tells us is a little bit about the sanctification. Because uh, uh, in the process of serving the Lord, God calls us to bear fruit for him. And God wants us to be more fruitful. And whenever we end up being fruitful to begin with, it's necessary for him to prune us. And that pruning can be very painful. So we have to come back to these steps and reassess. Our commitment from time to time. Well, I guess that brings us pretty much to the end of our time for today. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, I'm glad to be able to be here recording for you from Honolulu, Waikiki. God bless you. This is Kim Nicklides signing off for Advent Christian Voices.